right. Uh, this is going to be a fun one today. All right. <laughs> I woke up, I was driving our, our, some of my kids to church. They volunteer, and uh, they got to be here around 730 and it was sunny out, and I was like, oh, it's a gorgeous day. And then I stepped outside, and I was like, what is going on? How is it, this, how is it still cold and this sunny out? But that's Ohio for you. Uh, hey, like I mentioned before, today is Palm Sunday. That's an exciting day. We're one week away from Easter, the day that we celebrate our Lord and Savior's resurrection from the literal dead, literal grave. We believe, you're like, do, you, we, do we actually believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead? We do. We actually believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, as I mentioned, is Palm Sunday. That meant that, uh, that years ago in Jesus' day, one week before, his, before Easter, before the resurrection, as I mentioned, he rode into town on a donkey, and uh, the people celebrated him as the Messiah. Later on than that week, they would, they would deny him, and they would actually be the ones in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So this week is a very significant week to our Christian faith and our understanding of theology and doctrine and the resurrection and, and all those things. I would really challenge you this week to spend a little bit of extra time in the word, a little bit of extra time at the end of John. You're like, I can't read ahead in John. We haven't gotten there yet. It's okay. I'll give you a pass. You can go ahead and with your family, spend some extra time in the book of, of John and uh, read through that. Today, we're in week two of this series that we've entitled Conspiracy, and we're talking all through the different types of conspiracies or the different idols, or you could even say, lowercase, gods, that are after our heart. Now, how many of us know, don't forget, this is very interactive, um, right? I, I really, I think I preach better when I hear you preach a little bit to me. Um, how many of us know that we don't battle, just as Ephesians 6 tells us, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but our battle is against darkness, amen? Our battle is against principalities, rulers, and authorities not of this world. And now, once again, you might say, okay, do we actually believe that? Yes, we actually believe that. We actually believe that we have an enemy. In fact, we have multiple enemies, our flesh, the world, the devil, and they're all trying to pull us away from Christ or to keep us from Christ altogether. And so although we look around the world and we see a lot of chaos, a lot of big question marks, a lot of dissension in many avenues and areas, uh, a lot of people even walking away from, from faith altogether. I want you to know, although that looks like the battle, that is not the battle. There is a battle for your heart. There's a battle for your mind. There's a battle for your soul. So today, last week, we talked about the conspiracy of pleasure. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about the conspiracy of success, we might, even, we might even want to call this the conspiracy of America, the conspiracy of success. And our passage that we're going to be mainly rooted in today comes out of Luke chapter 18. But I want you, before we jump in there, uh, I, I want to help us understand that we're not called to experience. And by the way, take some notes this morning if you could. We're a church that worships in spirit and also in truth. Write down these truths. I know we're not in small groups right now. We take the month of April off but I want to encourage you to take notes anyway. You're like, ah, oh, I, I get a month off. I don't have to take any notes. No, we have, we have people that are watching. If you're not taking notes, you'll be escorted quietly out somewhere else to help in children's ministry. And uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. Here's one of the things I want you to know. We're not, ex we're not called as, as, as followers of Jesus to experience a life of defeat. 
We're not called to experience a life of defeat. Now, now that could mean something at one level and something different at another level. And I want to pull you out of kind of the physical realm and the way that we're thinking. We're looking at reality in terms of the things that we see right in front of us. But if I could grip the air and pull it back, which I can't do, but if I could, I would want you to know, and I think Scripture even more importantly wants us to know that there is another world and another realm that is taking place around you. The supernatural realm. And this is where the battles are waged. And our battles are, are, are waged in prayer and spiritual disciplines and adherence to Jesus Christ and following through consistently with him. These are the ways that we win our battles. And so these aren't battles that we're going to win with a gun. These aren't battles that we're going to win with a, a bazooka. These are battles that we're going to win by adhering to who Christ has called us to be through the understanding and knowledge and maturity that we gain from knowing God's word. Amen? And so we're not called to experience defeat, but rather, just as Christ said, I'm a conqueror. I've conquered the world. And just like I've conquered, I've overcome this world, so you have as well. We share in the victory that Christ has had over this world. But sometimes we find ourselves falling prey to the strategy of our enemy. And in effect, uh, that's how the conspiracy works, right? That's how the conspiracy works when we give greater affection to the things in our lives than we do to God. And that's called, by the way, just baseline, that's idolatry. We may not see that as idolatry, but it is idolatry. When we give more affection, more attention, more time, more energy, more emotional space to something other than God, I want you to know that that's, that is the battle right there, and that is us losing the battle. When we place things over God on the throne of our hearts, then we make those things God's. We make those things God's, lowercase g. We make those things into God's. Don't forget we said last week that we all worship something. In fact, why don't you turn to the person sitting next to you and tell them that. Just remind them of that. Say, hey, you were created to worship. Just tell them that right now. Yeah, it's in our nature. It's, it's hard-coded into our DNA. We were designed to worship, and I would say we were designed to worship God. The only problem is many of us have confused which God, lowercase g, uppercase g, is to have our hearts. And some of the gods of, of this conspiracy, of this battle, you know, what, that want us to buy into them, they're very blatant. And so sometimes we're like, oh, I'm good, man. You know, like, I'm good. I'm not buying into this conspiracy. I'm not buying into this whole thing. I'm good. You know, and you say, why? Well, I'm not, that's not me. You know, we go back to like the 60s and 70s, you know, and we're like, well, I don't buy into the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm good. I'm clean. You know what I'm saying? I'm good. I'm good. And we think that those are the only type of gods that want affection from us. We, those are blatant gods to be sure, right? But those aren't the only types of gods that, that want. We have to be careful when we think that those are the only destructive idols that want our hearts and affection. There are other gods that can be just as dangerous, even more dangerous, because they're barely recognizable as gods. Are you guys with me? Does this make sense? Yeah. They're barely recognizable. They're not blatant. In fact, they're good things. They're not bad things. But how many of us know that good things become bad things when they keep us from God? Good things become bad things when they take the throne of our heart. Good things become bad things when they steal our affection away from our Savior. Good things can be bad things. And so sometimes good things become gods in our lives. Here's how it works. 
right? We take the very good things. Let me just say that again. We take the very good things that God has given us, and we turn them into false idols. And here's the problem. We don't even realize they're there. We don't even realize that we've turned them into these false idols. We don't realize that they have replaced Jesus on the thrones of our hearts because they seem fine and they seem good and we are constantly displacing one God for another. And that's what we do, by the way. That is pretty much the summary of our lives. We will spend our lives just simply replacing, displacing one God for another. When you're a little kid, you, you know, maybe the most important thing to you is your video game system, you know, whatever console it is. I remember back in the day, I was a Nintendo guy. I didn't like Sega people, you know what I mean? It was like this battle, you know? If you're too young to know what a Sega is, I don't know what to tell you, but... Right? But maybe for you, it's a gaming system, and then, and then you get to school, and, 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 you, you know, and then you find out that girls exist, you know what I mean? And you displace your video game system for, for girls, or, or for a guy, and, and you've displaced one god for another. And then you get your license, and you're all about that, and you're going to drive, and you've now displaced one god for now this other god. And then you go to college, and it's college, 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 all college, all the time, study, got to get my major, got to get that job, got to get in debt, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> One God for another. Then you get out of school, and the rest of your life, you're trying to pay back that student loan, and it becomes a God. And then you meet your husband, then you meet your wife, and you displace that God with that God. And then you have kids, and you displace that God with that God. You guys seeing a pattern here? And then it's all about, well, i got to save because i got to retire, and i got to get a house, and i got to get a car. We are consistently, listen now, replacing one God for another and that is the story of so many of our lives, and we wonder why we are unfulfilled. We just try out different gods to see which one fits the best. We shove them into this God-shaped hole that's inside of us, and they fill the gap for a while, but then we're like, eh, it's not really doing it. Maybe I need to find something else. And so we get a new car. We get a new relationship. We get a new house. We take a new job thinking that that is the issue. That is not the issue because we're just swapping gods. And if you spend your life swapping out gods, you will spend your life running after a promise that when it's realized, you find out is false. It will not bring you fulfillment in any way, shape, or form. I love how John Calvin, the theologian, put it. He says, the human heart, listen to this now, this is very important. The human heart is a factory of idols. Now think about that for a minute. It's almost like we can't help but pump out, but churn out idol after idol after idol. I mean, good grief, one of the most popular shows for years, American Idol. Oh, I can't watch American Idol. I love Kelly Clarkson. No, you're missing the point, right? We are a factory of idols. We churn them out over and over. We are always creating these different things. We're always putting gods in our heart in place, in, in place of worship. And until we identify them and remove them from the throne of our hearts, we will miss out on the life that God desires for us to live. Now, let me quantify that a little bit. Because when I say that, you might think that I mean that when you remove the gods from the throne of your heart and put the one true God at the seat of your heart, then everything will be okay. But my friend, it is normally the opposite. Any just, any Christians in here that can testify to that, amen? Yes, it gets difficult. 
it gets hard. And, and I would say, well, yeah, of course. What would we expect? Because when you place the one true God on the throne of your heart, now all of a sudden, these things that had, uh, these things that had uh, occupancy inside of you are now battling to get back to the forefront. Your flesh is saying, oh, you got the wrong thing. We need to bring this back in. We need to bring this back in. And God's saying, hey, I'm right here. Put me at the throne. Put me at the front of your heart. Keep me right here. Follow after me. And it's difficult. And my friend, that's the battle. That is the battle. One of the greatest battles, I believe, is, is the one for success. And, and here's, here's the truth as well. I think that we have, to a degree, done a little bit of a disservice in church when we, and you gotta, you gotta hang tight, this is nuanced, okay? So just kinda hang tight with me here. I think we have done a little bit of a disservice at times when maybe at the end of a service, and I'm all about invitations, I'm all about seeing people meet Jesus, but we have this thing where we say like, I acknowledge Jesus as my savior, I raise my hand, and then on that day, I got, fill in the blank, what? I got, I got saved, and that's accurate. Understand, I believe and we believe theologically that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. If, if you repent of your sins, if you turn to Christ, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the risen Son of God, you are saved. But that's only part of the, of the deal. That's only part of it. Because following Jesus is more than a choice. Following Jesus, watch now, is a continual choosing. Now, I'm not talking in terms of salvation. Once you meet Jesus, once you accept him as your savior, your sins are forgiven. What sins? My old sins, my current sins, my future sins. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. I'm covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, and we would acknowledge that. Amen? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about a loss of focus, a loss of focus. It's not that we choose once a week on a Sunday to worship God. It's daily that we must choose to worship him. And it's not just once a day that we worship God, it's continually. The reason is because we must replace and not simply resist. Listen now, this is so important. When we're talking about pulling the idols and the gods and the conspiracies off our hearts, we must replace them, not simply resist them. We must replace them, not simply resist them. Replace and not resist. Every day you are faced with the question of what you will choose to worship. Will you worship God or will you worship something else? So there is a continual choosing that must happen. Will you worship God or will you worship, now watch this now, will you worship your spouse? Will you worship God or will you worship food? Will you worship God or will you worship your phone? That one hurts. Will you worship the Lord your God or will you worship your career or what other people think of you? The list is long, but every day, my friends, we have this choice, do we not? Every single day. And when we start to see life through the lens of, I will worship the Lord each and every day or I will worship something else each and every day, boy, things become very clear because that is where it's at. You are going to worship. The question is, what God are you going to worship today? Which God are you going to worship 
today. That brings us to our rooted passage here in chapter 18 of Luke. And this is a famous passage. I'm sure that most of us are probably familiar with it. If you're not, that's totally okay. We're going to walk through it today. It's the story of the rich young ruler. A man comes to Jesus and Scripture tells us that he's very wealthy, and he wants to know how he can be saved. He says, I've done all these things. What do I need to be saved? Let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 18. And it says this in verse 18. And a ruler, a young ruler, asked Jesus, good teacher. Let's pause right there. Good teacher. This man is already identifying Jesus as a rabbi. He's identifying Jesus as a man of influence and wisdom and authority. He's not coming incorrectly. You know, maybe the kids would say, he's coming correct. You know what I'm saying? Like he's coming to Jesus correctly in this moment. He's offering proper respect. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's interesting here. The word inherit could just as easily be translated as acquire or to earn. And this is one of the reasons (laughs) that we are so drawn to the conspiracy of success you say, why? Well, because it allows us to put our, our hope in our own achievements. It allows us to feel good about what we have achieved and, and what we've done, to think that we can somehow earn our salvation. So we make succeeding, now watch now, even spiritual success, a God in our life. This is religion, by the way. We make it a God in our life, a savior to us. Jesus doesn't seem necessary because, look, oh, look what I can do. Look, I can volunteer better than anybody else. Oh, look what I can do. I'm standing up here playing worship, and everybody's singing with me. Oh, look what I can do. I can serve better. I give more. I gave more than anybody. I got my giving record. How much did you give? And we start to, like, qualify or quantify how close we are to Jesus or how important we are to God based on what we've done. Success spiritual success and we love it we love it it fuels us it makes us feel good it makes us feel accomplished this is one of the reasons why the most successful people are some of the hardest to reach for the gospel some of the most financially elite individuals of the world are the most difficult to reach for the gospel Because in order for them to respond to Christ and to become a follower, they have to take the God of success, which they have used their life to achieve, off the throne. They have to replace that God with the one true God. This is very difficult. It's very hard. It's very difficult. In fact, the very thing they're placing on that throne, you want the secret? You want to know what that is? It's actually themselves. We put ourselves on the throne of our own heart. Let me ask you, is there anything more difficult than removing yourself from your own heart? Is there anything more difficult than removing yourself off the throne of your own heart? This is especially hard for us as men, isn't it? Yeah? Great response, exactly my point. It's hard for us to admit weakness. We don't wanna admit when we're wrong. We don't wanna admit when we're weak. We don't want to admit when we need help. We definitely don't want to tell our friends about that. We definitely don't want to make that known to everybody. Hey, I could really use some prayer. You know what's interesting? I find it fascinating when you talk to people and you're like, hey, man, how you doing? It's always what? I'm great. I'm great. Why do we even ask? I mean, honestly, I dare you sometime to actually let somebody know how you're doing. 
when they walk past you. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, it's been the worst week ever. Just go ahead and try that. See their response. I've done that before. Do you know what people have done? Of course, nobody here. But other places, other churches. Uh, I've done it before. And I had people be like, oh, wow, okay, and just walk away. <laughs> I'll be praying for you. Thanks a lot. You know what I mean? It's difficult for us to admit when we're weak. It's difficult for us to admit when we need help. It's hard, especially for a highly driven, successful person. I think uh, TV personality Bill Maher, I'm sure you have opinions about him, summed up the way many people think who have fallen prey to the conspiracy of success when he says this. He says this, quote, I just don't get the thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins. It's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. I can cleanse myself. This is also why when Warren Buffett donated 85% of his $44 billion fortune to charity, he said, quote, there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, but this is a pretty great way. What are both of these guys saying? They're saying, I don't need help. I can do it myself. I am successful enough. I can earn it on my own. Listen, write this down. We are continually wanting and desiring to be the source of our own salvation. I want to save me. I want to save me. And I want you to know that I can save me. We are continually trying to be the source of our own salvation. See why this is so hard? The only way to have victory over the God of success is to admit defeat. But it is the God of success that keeps us from admitting defeat. This is the conspiracy. Look at verse 19. Let's keep going here. Jesus goes right to the, what this man's question is, and he says this. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Jesus says, do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And then in verse 21, here's how the man responds. No one is good but God alone, Jesus says. You've got to follow all these commandments. And the man says, all these I have kept, <laughs> you got to love this response. Okay, Jesus, all those commandments, all those things I've kept since I was a boy. I've done all those things. I've done all those things. I'm good. See, Jesus was trying to help this guy out with his response because after Jesus says, no, no, no one is good, so keep the commandments, this man should have said, you're right, Jesus. In self-reflection, I'm not good. I'm not good. I am sinful. There's, there's things in me that are, are not good. I should keep the commandments, right? I can't do it on my own, but this isn't what the man says. Do you notice this? It's not what he says at all. Instead, he says, in maybe the most arrogant statement ever made in Scripture, oh, yeah, I've done all that stuff. That's what he says. Good teacher, tell me, how can I inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments, do this, do this, do this. Oh, yeah, I've already done all that stuff. What else do I need to know? Now, that sounds like an uber-successful driven person, doesn't it? Hey, can we just cut out all this stuff? Just get right to the heart of the matter. Just give me the meat. What do I need to do to make this happen? What do I need to know to actually make this happen? Right? It's fascinating. I've done all these things. This is so, so telling for those of us who have grown up in church, though, isn't it? Right? Maybe you're not bowing down to the God of financial success or some kind of job title but it is very easy for us to make spiritual success itself into a functional savior. Am I preaching to anybody today? Does this make sense? Any church kids grow up like me wrestling with making church a functional savior in place of Jesus Christ? 
Now, I'm all about church. I love it. I'm a pastor. I gave my life to it. I love doing it. But you got to understand, it's dangerous out there. It's dangerous in here. It's dangerous being a kid in Sunday school, getting a gold star because I memorized John 3.16, and then looking over my buddy who got a silver star because he didn't, but he showed up, not making myself feel like, I'm just a little bit better than him. And so it begins, the conspiracy of success, even spiritual success. It can be dangerous. And like the rich young ruler, maybe you have made religion and the doing of religion and the confidence that comes from being religious into a God because that is where your security is found. Listen now, in the doing, not the surrendering, but in the doing, in the earning, in the gaining, in the getting, in the showing, in the teaching, in the talking, in the speaking, in the singing, in the preaching, in the volunteering, in the serving. In the doing. And you feel like all that stuff is doing, is doing you a service because it's just proving to God and showing to God that you are worthy of the salvation that he granted to you. Listen to me. Listen. That has nothing to do with God's love for you. God loved you before you were doing that. God loved you before you showed up to church. Listen to me. God loved you before you started getting those religious gold stars. He's always loved you. But he demands to be on the throne of your heart. Not your church, not your pastor, not your worship music. None of it has a place because then it's idolatry. So maybe you keep all the rules. You're at church every time the doors are open. You read your Bible, memorize scripture, and you pray. You even come up with your own set of rules. You know what I mean? <laughs> we call these things legalism. Well, I don't see this movie. I don't see, I don't listen to that music. Unless it's you two, they get a Christian pass for some reason. I don't do this. I don't go there. I don't eat that. I don't drink this. I don't do this. And we come up with all these rules, and then we gauge how spiritually, uh, 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 how spiritually successful we are and other people are by how they keep those rules. It's legalism. I want you to know no amount of doing, no amount of showing up, no amount of giving, no amount of volunteering has any power to save you. Why? Ephesians tells us why. It's by grace that we have been saved. Listen to me now. Listen to me now. It's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. The author is so specific here. Paul in his letter to Ephesus is so specific. Watch what he says. He says, this is not by your own doing. The grace that you've been given, the faith that you've been given, it's not by your own doing. It's a gift. Let me hear you say the word gift. Gift. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. And nothing you could ever do could deserve it. It's a gift from God, not of works. And that's why we say religion kills and Jesus saves. Religion kills, and Jesus says, religion says, try harder, and you will be saved. Jesus says, come as you are, and I will save you. Religion says, do this, and this, and this, and you will be saved. Jesus says, come as you are, and I will save you. Religion says, do everything right, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and you will be saved. Jesus says, just come as you are, and I will save you. We show up to church 
not because it saves us, but because we love Jesus. We volunteer, not because it saves us, but because we love Jesus. We share our faith, not because it saves us, but because we love Jesus. We raise up and train up our children in the ways of the Lord and scripture, not because it saves us, but because we love Jesus. We replace the idols and the gods that fight for the center of our heart, not because it saves us, but because we love passionately Jesus. Each and every one of us will battle with this success monster, this conspiracy this man has great confidence. What should we say? He says, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. Jesus takes aim at the primary God that's in his life. And he said to him, you still lack one thing. Look at this now. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. See, this isn't a story about money. This is actually a story about idolatry. The man's money was great. I mean, we're talking Scrooge McDuck money here. You know? But even greater was the place that he had put success and wealth in the positioning on his heart. It meant more to him than following after Jesus. I want to ask you this morning. What means more to you than Jesus today? Come on. What means more to you than Jesus? No, 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 no Christian answers allowed. No religious answers allowed. No fake outs. No game. Do you remember how to be authentic with Jesus? Remember how to be honest with God about the state of your heart? Listen to me, men. Remember what it's like to be authentic with your creator and answer this question for me. What means more to you than Jesus? And whatever that answer is, no matter how good that object or thing or relationship is, it's idolatry. And it's not that you can resist it, it's that you must replace it. And just because you take your spouse off the throne of your heart doesn't mean you need to take her out of your life. Just because you take your children off the throne of your heart. So many of us, we have, we have children-centered homes. Take your children off the seat of your heart and put Jesus there. Take your career off the seat of your heart and put Jesus there. Put him in his proper place. See how your life shifts, how it changes. Things in our life that have the greatest ability to become a false God are the things that promise to do for us what only God can do. I know that so often we're chasing after happiness and we think we can fight here or there. And I want you to know that we need to redefine what happiness is. We can't just use our lives to chase happiness. It's going to be gone like that. That's a feeling. That's an emotion. Root yourself in the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. That's not an emotion, that's a truth. I want you, if you would, just bow your heads.
close your eyes for a moment. I asked you just a moment ago, what do you love more than Jesus? Maybe another way to phrase it would be, whatever you put your security in is ultimately your God. What do you put your security in? Ultimately, what is it? I wanna read this final passage and then we're gonna be done. Verse 24, eyes closed, heads bowed, just focus now. Jesus seeing that this man had become sad said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Listen to me, church. No one looking around, eyes closed, heads bowed. I know this morning that you have something on the seat of your heart that you do not know how to replace. It might become something that has become a crutch to you, an addiction to you, a relationship that you're addicted to, and you don't know how to function without it being front and center. And it might be impossible to you, but here's the good news. My God is the God of impossible. My God can move mountains. In fact, he speaks them into being. My God lifted up a handful of dirt that he created and breathed life into it. My God will take his rightful place on the throne of your heart if you simply repent, bow down, and say, I am yours. Take control. You have my attention. I give it to you. I don't know how to replace this God, but I know that it needs to be you. Take your rightful place. And you can have faith and confidence that God will. Now your life is going to shift dynamically. You may not feel, quote, happy, but you will be filled with a sense of peace and joy that you have never experienced. And you will be right with your maker. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm gonna ask you to pray a dynamic prayer today. But don't you dare pray it unless you're ready for the consequences. I mean that, I mean that. Don't pray this unless you're ready for the ramifications of what you're about to pray. Here's the prayer, you ready? God, take back your seat on the throne of my heart. Do whatever is necessary to take back your rightful place in my heart. I surrender to you. I give it to you. And I welcome you. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect. Maybe work up a little bit of courage to pray that today. And maybe it's not today. Maybe it's tomorrow. My prayer would be that you would make that the prayer of your life. Take a moment right now and reflect on today's teaching.